Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to explore the boundaries of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Jenny Peruski from Harvard University. Today, I'm here to talk to professors Stephanie Wynne-Jones and Adria LaViolette, the editors of The Swahili World, published by Rutledge World in 2018. Stephanie Wynne-Jones is Senior Lecturer and Deputy Head in the Department of Archaeology at the University of York, where she specializes in Eastern African coastal urbanism, material culture, and social practice. She has carried out a number of archaeological projects, including urban archaeology and transitions in the Zanzibar archipelago, and co-production and community heritage in Tanzania, among many others. And she has published extensively on the topics of Swahili urban landscapes, coinage and currency, and domestic architecture to reference but a few of her studies. Adria LaViolette is professor and director of undergraduate studies in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Virginia, where she similarly specializes in Swahili urban landscapes, craft production, Islamic religious practice, and political economies. She has carried out a number of archaeological projects on various urban and rural settlements in Pemba and Unguja on the Zanzibar archipelago. Her publications include Swahili Cosmopolitanism in Africa and the Indian Ocean World, 600 to 1500, Craft and Industry in this edited volume, The Swahili World, and The Archaeology of African History, co-edited with Anne Brawler-Stahl. Her rec- their recent edited volume, The Swahili World, presents 56 studies by 61 authors on various topics related to the study of coastal Eastern Africa. Their work cuts across a broad time period, ranging from the first century common era to the present day. Through these collected studies, Stephanie and Adria bring together varied discourses in order to highlight the complex historical and historiographic processes that come to bear on Swahili Coast studies. Turning now to our speakers, Stephanie and Adria, I'd like to welcome you to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about your book today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yes. Um, Can you maybe each start us off by saying a few words about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, or any particularly influential mentors that you had? You go ahead, Steph. You go ahead and start. Okay. Uh, well, so I, um, I grew up actually near Cambridge in the UK, and I studied at Bristol and then at Cambridge. Um, and actually, although Mark Horton, who's a very uh, prominent Swahili archaeologist, did teach at Bristol, he never taught us any classes on the Swahili coast. And it wasn't really until I went to Cambridge, where I studied African archaeology, and then went on to do a PhD, that I came across this part of the world. Uh, At the time, it was still quite rare to study at a university in the UK. I think maybe that's less true than it was. Um, And 
And actually, I fell in love with the Swahili coast when I went out to the British Institute in Eastern Africa uh, when I was a master's student. And I went and did a studentship or an internship as a student uh, where I was sent on various different projects. And I went on a project with one of Adria's students, actually, uh, Lynn Coplin who was working at Gedi on the Kenya coast. And it was this great project sort of working um, in, and, in and around the town. Uh, and I really, I fell in love with the, the archeology span and the place uh, and some of the questions. And, and actually it was then that I decided to go back and do a PhD in this area. Uh, I can jump in and say that um, I grew up in New England in, in Connecticut and Massachusetts. Um, I went to Yale as an undergraduate. Um, I should say that I had a formative experience uh, that drew me to studying Islam uh, as, uh, because I was an exchange student um, in high school in Afghanistan. And I got into uh, sort of, I, I just was, exp I was a middle-class kid with no, <laughs> no experience of the world, but, but that was a major uh, moment for me. And, and without sort of explicitly thinking about it, I was drawn to, um, sort of Middle Eastern studies and um, specifically sort of uh, Islam uh, when I went to college. Um, I studied archaeology at Yale and um, uh, a fair amount of Middle Eastern um, um, topics, which then led me to do uh, archaeology uh, at Washington University in St. Louis um, under the direction of Patty Jo Watson, who uh, was a major figure in uh, in Middle Eastern uh, archaeology, among other things. Um, but I switched in, I was, exp uh, uh, Rod, Rod and Susan McIntosh uh, uh, were teaching at Wash U uh, my first and second year, and I got um, drawn into their research at Jenny Geno in Mali. Um, I did my research in Mali, my PhD research in Mali, um, and on, on um, craft production and its role in early urbanism there. And then I took a job at University of Dar es Salaam uh, as soon as I finished my PhD, which, you know, obviously planted me smack in uh, position to, um, uh, to, to uh, think about the Swahili world. So it really wasn't until I finished my PhD that I did, um, that I started working in Tanzania. Yeah, I should probably say as well that after I finished my PhD, I went to work at the British Institute in Eastern Africa um, as the assistant director. And that was really formative for me as well, because I got to spend three years actually living in East Africa and traveling and studying and learning the language. And, you know, it really made a big difference to, to my scholarship, I think, afterwards. Fabulous. Um, so that's really interesting to hear that you both were working at the British Institute in East Africa. Well, not for, not not me. I was at the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, but of course I was I was uh, interacting with the British Institute. They they funded some of my work. I I certainly uh, you know that that was part of the the structure, the intellectual structure that I was that I was able to take advantage of when I was there for sure. And my understanding is that you two have worked together previously, including producing at least one article together, namely, When Did the Swahili Become Maritime?, published in the American Anthropologist in 2015. Can you tell us a little bit about your history of working together and how the idea for your edited volume, The Swahili World, developed? Steph, why don't you take that? Um, well, I think I would say that we were friends and colleagues rather than specifically working together um, before this volume, because 
I'd actually, I'd visited Adria's project before and we'd met at conferences. Um, I'd already done some work with, obviously with some of her students. Um, and, uh, and so we'd, we had met and, um, and interacted and I'd say that we were friends. Um, but actually it wasn't until the Swahili world idea that we came up with the idea of working together. Um, and I'd love to say it was our idea, but in fact, it was Routledge <laughs> um, who approached us about um, the idea of a volume on the Swahili world. And this is to be the first of a series of volumes about different African uh, past civilizations. Um, and uh, certainly it was a project neither of us could really envisage doing alone. Uh, but we talked about it at a conference. I can't think where we were. Maybe you'll remember. But um, but we talked about it and decided that perhaps we could take it on if we did it together. Um, and uh, so we. This was our first sort of joint writing project, I would say. And so, what was the process then for finding and soliciting chapter contributors? How did you determine what chapters each of you would write? Um, because in addition to the introduction, you each wrote two chapters in this, I believe. And what was the editing process like? How did that all get decided? Uh, I, I could I could start that maybe. Um, we uh, I think we started with an outline. Um, if I'm right, Steph, you can correct me, but. Um, or if I'm wrong, but the I think we started with an outline of topics, um, maybe two lists, an outline of topics and sort of the people whose work we thought uh, really needed to be um, uh, included. And, and you know, they, they, they obviously mapped closely onto each other. Um, some of the people we invited um, were unable to participate. And so, you know, I think we assigned ourselves some chapters once the larger... Um, the, the the most of the matches were made, you could say. Um, uh, craft production is something I certainly am interested in. Pemba Island, uh, you know, a place where I've worked extensively. Um, Steph had sort of had her eye on a couple of chapters. Uh, uh, we we always intended to do the introduction together, um, and so, um, gosh, I mean, I think out of the fifty odd people, you know, in the I think only uh, only a few didn't respond right away and say that they would very much like to do it. So it was it was actually um, again something neither one of us would have loved doing on our own. I think, but as a joint project, it, 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 it even including sort of selecting who would be in it and reaching out to all of those people, it was um, really a very positive, uh, very positive experience. Um, Yes, I mean, I would agree. And I think that was crucial to us was trying to represent the work that was going on on this in this region. Um, and so in some ways, we sort of devised the structure of the book around that framework around things that we th we thought these authors might want to contribute on. And in, in certain cases, um, they got back to us and said, actually, I'd like to do this different, take this in a different direction. Um, Often, sometimes many directions, <laughs> but we. Um, but so that was part of it. Was sort of trying to to sort of do justice to the work that was going on. Um, I would also say um, that we we had some challenges as well when we sort of sat down to map the things we thought we should deal with. Um, we we had certain things that we then couldn't find 
people to write about. So, for example, we we wanted to talk a little bit more about sort of Arab histories and travellers and how they had referred to the Swahili coast. And, and we really struggled to find someone who who wanted to write on that topic. And so so in some cases, you know, it 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 was sort of led by us. And in other cases it had to be led by the the people because there were some areas that we just couldn't couldn't cover. Um, and do you see this volume as developing on or departing from previous work, either that you've done together or individually? Oh, um, well, there, the the last book like this, uh, or that that sort of tried to, there, well, there are a couple. There are a couple, right? There, there. It's not that there's nothing been written on the Swahili for sure. Um, the the Horton and Middleton volume that um, that sort of drew the Swahili together. Um, History and archaeology uh, is now, you know, some years old. Um, there are um, there are certainly individual individual monographs about the Swahili, but we didn't feel well. Of course, the world the, the the Rutledge came to us because they wanted to represent the Swahili world in their Worlds series, and so that was we thought a, a great opportunity to put to to bring together, um, you know disparate, uh, uh, mostly complementary threads into into nothing, something that wasn't promising to cover everything about Swahili, um, but but to to be a new sort of jumping off point for a new reference point for people who wanted to kind of get 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 inside this topic. So I don't think anything like it had been attempted before at this scale. Um, for me personally, um, I think it's, it, it was a very nice um, opportunity to put my view of or to put my experience with Swahili into a larger context. And I know I learned tremendously from it and um, really, really enjoyed um, working with, with um, all of the authors and certainly working with Steph. So it was a departure in the sense that it was a much it was on a much bigger scale and, and covering much more than I would have ever um, sort of you know, taken, you know, my, my corner of Swahili scholarship, I would not, not have um, uh, attempted to write anything on, you know, anything as comprehensive. It only worked to, uh, as an edited volume uh, for me. I think it's, um, there, there is no such thing. There has had been no such thing. And I think it's, I, I think it's been well received. Yeah. I mean, although I say that Adria and I had not worked together before, I think we worked in some quite similar ways. We were working on sort of topics of of trying to think about, um, you know, how people use material culture or craft and industry, or Adria had worked on sort of non-elite populations in towns. And we were sort of um, creating some some relatively sort of small stories, I think, about the Swahili world, and I don't, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. Actually, I, th- I, I think some of, I'm most proud of some of those sort of smaller local stories, and so I think what this book represented for both of us was a chance to sort of try and scale that up into, okay, we've we've thought about some of the nuances of regional traditions, like how do we now envisage this sort of larger world. Um, and as Adria says, it worked well as an edited volume, but it was also this moment to sort of say, this is how all of this research that's going on contributes to this new vision of this region and its archaeology and its history um, and its heritage. And so I think it was um, 
an ability to sort of scale up to that bigger picture story. And I think that comes across really strongly throughout the volume is that there is this great um, synthesis of kind of work that's been done so far and what is being done now and where this can go in the future. I think that comes across really strongly throughout the volume. And so maybe that's a great segue then to get into some of the more specifics of the chapters and sections. So beyond your co-authored introduction, the text is divided into three broad sections entitled Environment, Background, and Swahili Historiography, The Swahili Age, and the Early Modern and Modern Swahili Coast. And each of these sections are further divided into a number of subsections tackling ideas related to environment, scholarship on the Swahili world, the formation of the Swahili coast, urbanism, daily life, trade, architecture, and colonialism. Together, these sections present a fascinating overview of the complex historical processes that have enabled us to talk about the Swahili coast as a coherent entity. Beginning with your introduction, you offer a broad overview of scholarship on the Swahili coast, highlighting the ongoing tensions between inland Eastern Africa and the Indian Ocean world when discussing Swahili history and culture. Can one or both of you tell us a little bit about the nature of this divide between quote-unquote maritime and terrestrial and the limitations of such an outlook? Steph, do you want to start off? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think... There's, there's a, a lot of very long answers to that question, and I'll try, I'll try to keep them short. Um, I mean, I think the introduction gave us an opportunity to do this work of sort of scaling up to say this is what our big picture view of the Swahili world is. Um, and that was quite important to me, actually, to bring out some of these themes, um, and I assume to Adria as well. Um, and one of the themes that has always structured Swahili archaeology and history um, has been a tension between foreign and local. And this comes from the sort of early history of research in the region with this, um, essentially, this, this idea that, that framed early archaeology and history, that the Swahili were settlers who came from the Arab world and founded towns on the coast. And there have been generations now of archaeologists and historians who've worked against that to show that uh, the Swahili are an African society with African Bantu roots um, and who got involved in the Indian Ocean world, but that that didn't make them Arab. Um, and so so there's been a lot of research which is um, which has sort of been pushing back against that vision, the, the um, external vision of the Swahili. And um, for me, in this book, um, a lot of what we were trying to do with the introduction um, was to try and leave that behind, to get rid of that sort of idea that you have to be either Arab or African. It's it's a really sort of reduced vision <laughs> of Swahili society. If you're always trying to put it, you know, sort of identify it as um, this sort of large ethnic group. Um, and so instead, we tried to sort of build this idea of these coastal society, these people who were living on the African continent, they were Africans, and yet they were part of this Indian Ocean world. And, and um, you have to sort of recognize that as well, really to understand uh, the richness and um, the diversity of Swahili society. And so uh, we tried to pull that out. Um, but I think uh, 
I think we haven't resolved that issue forever. I mean, I think there are always going to be issues on sort of either side of, you know, scholars who feel that if you emphasise the the sort of oceanic connections of the Swahili, then you're undermining their Africanness in some way. And vice versa, people who think, you know, you need to think about them in the Indian Ocean world. Um, and so there's been this tension in the scholarship. And um, I think you have to understand that a little bit to try and understand the ways that people write about um, inland and ocean. Uh, and actually, we tried to represent both in the chapters in the volume. Um, I mean, we didn't represent all of East African archaeology, all these societies who could potentially be connected to the coast. Um, but we did try to represent the places and the research that have sort of looked towards the coast. So they're doing research in the interior, but they're thinking about the ways that interior articulates with the Indian Ocean world. And so we sort of, we tried to walk that line but in doing so, to create this sort of sense that you can do both and maybe to leave some of that debate behind. Uh, I 100% agree with everything Steph said. Um, I think that um, the, the swing from foreign origins, early 20th century foreign origins, to, to African origins in the second half of the 20th century um, uh, and then the nuance, the further nuancing of that from, for example, um, from Mark Horton's really influential Scientific American article called The Swahili Corridor, which came out in the, um, uh, in the what, late 80s, um, which sort of created this notion that there was a kind of, you know, uh, this entity where people were moving up and down the coast um, in a kind of, um, not in a, not unified politically, but uh, with with many cultural traditions that that were spread and which tied people together, um, we, we got the sort of notion of a coast. We cr- a, a notion of the coast was created, and then um, you know later then broken down uh, when he he you know uh, uh, when Mark Horton then published a, another important article uh, closing the corridor, which sort of said yes, there is a Swahili there is a Swahili entity, but in fact there's lots of sub entities within it. And I think that was a moment where tying these smaller sections of the coast back to um, back to their hinterlands, their African hinterlands, their you know their their continental hinter- hinterlands, and sort of showing what the relationships were between coastal peoples and people in the interior. I think that was a really important phase of Swahili Swahili studies. Um, and I think that um, yeah, they're they're. I mean, with with as many people as as work on the coast, and with a fairly diverse uh, diverse uh, 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 set of uh, subjectivities and positionalities, there is there's likely to be, and and I guess you would sort of hope there to be ongoing debate. Like, um, I think we 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 all want to see the debate move forward and not sort of rehash uh, rehash. Uh, the same. We we don't want to argue. We don't want to have to argue that that Swahili people are of African origin anymore. I think that there are still some voices uh, opposing that. But uh, the but but overall, I think we we have a sort of a healthy consensus with also some issues within it that continue to continue to um, or at least have recently continued to to be uh, debated. And and I would say, um, you know, if when you when you have a diverse uh and i mean intellectually in all all kinds of ways diverse um uh 
sort of uh, collectivity of people working on something, it's it's healthy to have disagreement. Otherwise, everybody gets too settled into their positions. And I, so I think I think um, uh, I think I think Swahili studies are in a, a pretty interesting and and uh, intellectually exciting state. Absolutely. And I think you further some of these conversations in your first section where you're tackling a lot of weighty questions about who the Swahili are Mm -hmm. and when and how a quote unquote Swahili cultural world formed. Mm -hmm. How did this section come together in this way? And what do you see as the primary significance of addressing these questions? Stefan. Well, I, I think, um, Actually, this this follows on from what we've just been saying about the sort of history of Swahili research and this sort of um, tension between um, sort of external and internal um, potentially influences, but but which has sort of coalesced in a conversation about Swahili origins, like the the sort of origins of the Swahili um, as a coastal group have, has become a, a debated topic and um, not just in archaeology actually you know the the who are the Swahili is a, a common question um in anthropology and in history as well it's all sort of goes in lots of different directions um and so uh, and there has been a fair amount of research on this means that there's been quite a lot of research around the sort of background to the formation of this coastal culture, because this is seen as being the, you know, the melting pot from which Swahili society emerged. Um, and so we wanted to have that represented through um, these chapters from people who've been exploring you know, very different things. They've been, uh, you know, we've had we had something from um, Nicole Boivin and Alison Crowther who've been looking at the movement of crops around the Indian Ocean. And it's not, you know, it's not sort of technically about the formation of the Swahili world, but it's it sets the stage for these kind of movements of people around this region, trying to sort of think about this region as being, you know, interconnected in all these different ways. Um and then we wanted to do justice as well to all the um, all the sort of other ways that people have thought about the Swahili, not just as a group of people settled on the coast, but through their language and um, through their sort of history and the ways that historical linguistics allows you to reconstruct um, the history of settlement on the coast. And so we we'd sort of tried to get all of that in there um, to set the stage for this very cosmopolitan um, sort of archaeological and historical culture that then emerges. So maybe moving forward then to your second section uh, entitled The Swahili Age, can you talk about why you titled it this way? What does this term ex- or expression mean? And then you both wrote chapters for this section. Adria, you wrote Pemba Island circa 1000 to 1500 BC. Er, Common Era and Craft and Industry. And Stephanie, you wrote Kilwa Kithwani and Songo Mnara, as well as the social cos- composition of Swahili society. Can you each tell us a little bit about your chapters and how you see them fitting into the broader structure or meaning of this section? Uh, sure. Uh, Pemba, which is a place I've worked at, uh, worked on for a, a long time and, and actually planning to return there to do more work. Um, it's a, it's a, um, uh, it, it was a heartland, a very high density heartland of Swahili, um, uh, Swahili life, um, from, from, you know, the 
mid first millennium AD, so very, very early. And um, the, the examples of Swahili life that it, um, that it have been revealed there through archaeology have sort of really helped uh, nuance uh, things going on, uh, trends going on um, in other parts of the coast. And so um, it, it made sense to talk about it as a region. Um, uh, there are a number of sites there that I've worked at, my students have worked at, um, and uh, Mark Horton certainly has very influential work and, and work that went back into the, into the fifties and uh, in sort of the, 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 you know, the, the earlier phases of Swahili archeology span took place there as well. So it had just a really, it it has a story of its own to tell. And um, uh, it is a place where we have connected uh, as Stephanie mentioned earlier, we've connected uh, the idea of non- um, non-urban Swahili. A lot of Swahili studies had focused on urban centers, uh, and then all of us, each of us, has worked at urban centers too. But the story that goes, you know, the story around urban centers and how they, how the people in the countryside and urban centers are connected, how they informed each other, helped each other, uh, were related to each other. These are not foregone. You know, these are not these are not things you can assume. You understand, and so um, Pemba has really has really been the, the site of a lot of, a lot of, um, work that, that informs those kinds of questions. And so, um, it, it needed to have its own, it needed to have its own story, not site by site. We ended up doing uh, all within the chapter. We certainly, within the chapter, I certainly, uh, talk about individual sites, but, but it, it has a kind of, um, uh, sort of a brand of archeology span almost, uh, of its own that, that has, that has been, uh, a, was a nice thing to talk about. Yeah, and, and sorry, I didn't want to cut in on you, Adrian. Yeah, no, go ahead. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we we actually um, we wanted to have a, a sort of section of the book which dealt with the growth of settlements on the coast, this kind of early emporia um, that you get along the coast from the sort of 7th, 8th century, then um, the sort of stone town tradition from the 11th century onwards, um, and uh, sort of what we know about life and um, trade and religion within those places. Um, and so we have chapters like the one um, Adria is talking about, about Pemba, which deal with particular locations where a lot of work have been done. And, and we wanted, rather than sort of passing those out between chapters thinking about themes, we wanted to make sure we were dealing with places about which we know a lot. Um, and so her Pemba chapter and then mine on Kilwa, Kisiwani and Songram Nara were designed to achieve that because you know, just just putting them in a, a chapter about you know stone architecture or whatever it might be, uh, your your average reader might then think, oh, what you know, what is this place, Kilwa? I don't know a lot about that. And so we wanted to to have those sort of places, those sort of data points, I guess, represented, um, as well as having these more sort of thematic chapters too. Um, and uh, in terms of why we called it the Swahili Age, actually, we were slightly um, influenced by the Vikings. When we were doing this book, I was, um, I was actually on a research fellowship in Sweden, in Uppsala. Um, and uh, there they talk about the Viking Age as being this period where, which is really defined by these Viking voyages that are being made by groups by settlers from around the coast um, and the interactions that 
that that um, involves. And and this seemed actually to have some really nice parallels with the Swahili situation. Um, and we wanted to avoid um, calling it something like the golden age or the classic age. We didn't want to, you know, offend anyone who works on a different age, um, particularly people who work on more recent periods on the Swahili coast um, don't like to think that, you know, the Swahili has a moment the Swahili culture has a moment that it finishes and so instead we're talking about that sort of age where um we have this sort of pre-colonial culture that really um and their interactions and their voyages and their towns is really defining this period in this region absolutely and so then turning towards your final section the early modern and modern Swahili coast you can feel, particularly in this section, but throughout the volume as a whole, the impact of colonial and post-colonial policymaking. Associations with architecture and urbanity come across particularly strongly throughout this section in chapters like Abdul Sharif's Zanzibar Old Town, William Cunningham Bissell's The Modern Life of Swahili Stone Towns, or Preta Meyer's The Swahili House, A Historical Ethnography of Modernity. How has a focus on urbanity and stone architecture shaped Swahili Coast studies, and how can we move outside of this? Um, I'll maybe jump in on this. Um, uh, I mean, one of the sort of extraordinary things about Swahili is is the urban center, the 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 sort of these iconic urban centers that survived physically um, to be recognized on the coast. Of course, they were first uh, in, in ruins, were first uh, assumed to be colonial colonial uh, outposts of the Middle East in East Africa, which sort of started the whole started the whole ball rolling on Swahili. Um, and so the, the the towns are are extraordinary. The architecture is extraordinary. And the it makes complete sense that the towns um, have received an over, you know, that, that, that they received an oversized amount of uh, attention um, from the early 20th century on. And, and I, I think to not study the towns um, uh, would be a huge mistake. I mean, you, you need to, you, the, the towns have been incredibly, they have literally been central uh, nodes in Swahili society. Um, starting in the, um, I mean, I would say, uh, what a, a nice development to complement that was was using um, different kinds of field methods and you know for, based on you know motivated by different questions about what's going on outside the towns, um, doing survey finding using sort of systematic subsurface testing to find uh, to find the 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 the, the, the villages and sm smaller settlements around uh, around the towns. I think a lot a, a lot of people in the 20th century assumed that the towns existed kind of in a vacuum separated in various ways from their, that if they were colonial outposts, they didn't need to be integrated into settlement systems with, with, you know, farming communities and other kinds of communities. And one of the things, the shift to thinking about Swahili as an African society led to was it's like, if, if they're African societies, then there there's going to be, they are tied into, they are tied into the regions around them. And so a number of us have focused on that question. Um, so who else is there? Who else is there even beyond the stone buildings in the stone, in the so-called stone towns? And so um, I think that's a, I don't think there's a massive shift in the scholarship 
so that we're only interested in the spaces around the towns, the people in villages and hamlets, the um, all of the interactions going on at 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 somewhat less visible scale uh, that you, that need that need to be um, found and documented. But I do think there's a there's a steady stream of um, people who have now emerged to to look at that, and so that's been a very nice development in the field. So I would say yes, there's a we don't want to over we don't want to over uh, state the importance of the towns, but but. The countrysides don't, they, they have their own story to tell, but they also, those, that story makes the most sense in the context of the towns. Um, so I think um, an integration of work on, on both kinds of settlements or, or, or multiple kinds of settlements that are out there and the diversity within the towns themselves, they're not, they're very different from each other. And so um, all of that sort of, um, sort of drilling down into different sectors of Swahili, different parts of the coast, different parts of settlements. Um, different ways of studying the, the communities outside those settlements uh, will will continue to bear fruit for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I I really like this section, um, and uh, part of what I really like about it is um, that many of these studies of Swahili towns are, of course, what sort of shapes our vision of you know of these more recent Swahili towns have sort of shaped our vision of some of the towns in the past as well. And, you know, Swahili stone towns now are really important centers. They're, you know, places like Lamu, Zanzibar town, Mombasa. These are very important settlements uh, in the 21st century. And they're, they're also very important heritage sites for the ways the coastal past is understood. And, and, Many of those authors that you mention, like um, William Bissell and Preta Meyer, writing about the the sort of nuances and understandings of contemporary architecture or colonial post-colonial architecture, um, have have given some real sort of lovely intellectual sort of meat to what we can think about in some of the houses um, of the past. Um, But what I also like about this section, actually, is that it introduces the idea of chronology to thinking about the stone towns too, because even though those are really inspiring um, studies and they sort of bring us into the world of towns and how important the stone houses are and how identities are sort of constructed in and around these urban spaces. Um, it was important, I think, to both of us to show that these are all, these also fit into this historical um, sort of time depth to the Swahili coast. There has often been a tendency in Swahili studies to compress Swahili history into one um, one sort of continuous and some, somewhat unchanging uh, culture so that, you know, a Swahili stone town of the 11th century can be understood in the, through the same logics as a Swahili stone town of the 19th century. And what this section does is to sort of bring in the Omanis, bring in the sort of changing urban landscapes of that 19th, 20th century period um, and sort of position those in time so that we can, the idea was, and hopefully this is what comes through, you you get a sense of these as changing, evolving urban spaces. You've got this town as this, this sort of node, as Adria says, this kind of focal point in these 
um, in coastal society, but it's not static. It has changed over time. It's had different relationships with its countryside. It's had different groups of people living inside it and different architecture um, making it up. And so the idea is also to sort of pull out that chronology a little bit and show that you know, we can't just talk about stone towns at all places and all times, that it has to be more specific and more chronologically sensitive than that. Absolutely. And I think that comes across particularly strongly in William Bissell's chapter, in which he's talking about this idea of the museumification of the stone town. And so there's this history or historicity that's been applied onto them, um, that's kept them in a certain um, immovable past. Yeah. Yeah, I love that chapter. <laughs> and I agree. <laughs> he was one of the brave historians who, who stepped in. <laughs> we were very glad to have the historians uh, c- contributing to the, to the volume. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for agreeing to talk with me today and to share with our viewers kind of your experiences writing and editing this volume. I think we've probably taken up enough of your time, but I want to end with asking you what each of you are working on now. Can you tell us a little bit about any current or future projects? Um, I'll start. I, I have been working for the last few years with uh, Neil Norman on Unguja, Zanzibar Island, um, on Portuguese, uh, some Portuguese settlements in the north, uh, and sort of integrating them into a into a Swahili landscape uh, to look at uh, social and economic relationships uh, uh, in sort of a faltering Portuguese uh, colonial effort. So um, to complement things we know about the Portuguese in centers like Mombasa and even the Zanzibar Stone Town, um, to sort of look at Portuguese in the countryside and 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 what they were up to. Um, I've all, I'm I'm also uh, uh, at the in the early stages of a, a new project with um, Rhiannon Stevens and Jason Smurden of Columbia and uh, Neil again of William and Mary on um, uh, at the sort of nexus of power, gender, and climate on the coast. Um, that's a project we may uh, uh, feature work on Pemba. Um, when we can, when we can get back there, um, but that's that's an exciting project that that's that that also combines sort of working across history, archaeology, and environmental science um, to to look at um, the effects of of drought and so forth on the coast. Um, and then I'm and then I'm uh, I will I will admit to still be moving uh, uh, you know past work um, uh, into into publication, uh, especially work on Pemba and. Uh, several projects on Pemba that, that are now nearing, uh, nearing publication. And I, I also have a project in Zanzibar. Um, I work with, um, I'm part of a centre at Aarhus University in Denmark, the Centre for Urban Network Evolutions. Um, and with them, um, I began a project uh, on Zanzibar thinking about urban ecology. So trying to think about how settlements, towns um, in uh, in Zanzibar were sort of fitted within a local resource landscape, how they were drawing on local environmental resources, how they were using, you know, forest and mangrove, how they were using the reef, um, whether they were sort of changing the landscape to support 
um, a settled population, an urban population. Um, and we've already done some work at Ngujaraku. Um, and we have another season of field work planned um, actually in the north of the island, um, probably in the hinterland of Tumbatu, um, to think about two different periods. There's sort of first millennium period and then whether that changed um, in the second millennium. And uh, that's, um, again, working with environmental scientists, a bit like Adria, to sort of um, to use archaeology to pick up on the traces of um, resources that were being used and to really go into detail about how people were embedded in these island landscapes um, and also how they were changing those landscapes um, and how sustainable uh, that might have been over the long term. Um, and I hope we'll make it back for our second field season. It was planned to be in early 2021. Um, but then I, I have a couple of um, projects which are less um, fieldwork based, but where I've been working as well on, on doing some sort of outreach and public presentation of uh, the results of archaeology. Um, so I have a project called um, Rising from the Depths, where we've been funding projects thinking about maritime or marine cultural heritage um, in East Africa um, and trying to promote the importance of marine cultural heritage um, across the region. Uh, and then the CONCH project, um, the co-production and community heritage project that you referred to at the beginning, um, has been fascinating, actually. It's been about going out to places places where I've worked mainly um, and asking locally um, various different stakeholders about what they would like heritage to do for them and you know what they're sort of looking for from their heritage and we've had some really interesting and humbling responses from places I mean uh, so for example working at Kilwa where I've excavated on and off um, either at Kilwa and Songram or Songramanara for years and then you go back and talk to people and they say oh yeah we know you but we've got no idea what you found or what the history is we'd really just like a book in Swahili that told us you know and you think gosh why why did I never ask this before <laughs> and so um so I've also got these sort of projects which are less about pushing research forward and more about um doing some of that work locally as well and then trying to find the money to create that book <laughs> let, let me that just it, what you just said Steph reminded me I've been working with people on Zanzibar working on Zanzibar and Pemba to help create text in English and Swahili for interpretation at various archaeological sites that uh, Zanzibar Antiquities is seeking to develop. And I, I completely uh, <laughs> echo Stephanie's uh, uh, experience that, um, you know, the, the sort of local, the, the kinds of questions uh, archaeologists tend to ask may intersect with local interest at some level, but there's often a great deal that doesn't. And so I think that is a, that is ongoing work to, uh, to to make to to make our work uh, accessible and to also of course involve community interest in our work at, at all levels. I think that's something that um, we're seeing it in a number of places on the coast to, to really work locally with people and um, help have them help us shape the kinds of work that we're doing. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored the diverse and complex world of the Swahili coast through Stephanie Wynne-Jones and Adria LaViolette's complex and challenging volume, The Swahili World, published by Rutledge World in 2018. 
This is your host, Jenny Peruski. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.